You are Locked On Syracuse, your daily podcast on the Syracuse Orange, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Little bit closer than we would have liked it yesterday, but Syracuse still pulls off a 62-56 win. Tyler Aki, Tim Leonard with you here on the Locked On Syracuse podcast. Check us out on Twitter at LO underscore Syracuse. And if you're new to the show, welcome on in and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to your podcast. We really appreciate all that. The only place that you're going to get daily Syracuse podcast, Locked On Syracuse. We're with you every single weekday, Monday through Friday. All right, Tim. Wasn't pretty, but the Syracuse <laughs> once again grinds out a victory, 62-56, like I said, over Northeastern. One of the better non-con teams that this team's going to play, obviously Rutgers at the top of that list, but in terms of the non-power conference teams, this them and, and Buffalo, who you're going to face on Saturday, two of the best, so maybe you can, you can, if that helps you sleep at night, go for it, but... The offense in this game was putrid. I mean, you look, the the shooting percentage, 31%. It was by far and away the lowest of the season. Two of 18 from three. Nothing was flowing offensively for this team. The positives are they kind of won the game with defense. (laughs) And I never would have thought that I'd say that about Syracuse. Like, they go to the press, and Joe Girard gets six steals in this game. That's probably the biggest statistic of the game, the fact that they got 10 steals. Jim Beheim brought that up in his press conference afterwards. But you get two points from Buddy and Alan Griffin, and it kind of goes back to what we talked about with James Zuba on one of our last podcasts, which is this team's just deeper than they have been in the past. All five of those starters that Syracuse has been playing with Barama out can score 20 points on any given night. Now, Marek probably is the least likely of those five, but it wouldn't shock me if he got to 20. And we've seen the other four do it all in the first six games of the season here. So it's nice that with your two probably highest statistical scores that we will see this season in Buddy and Alan Griffin, when they combine for two more points than you and I scored yesterday, Ty, that is, it's a good sign that you still are able to get the win. I don't know if other Syracuse teams could have gotten away with their two best players playing as poorly as they did. I'm I'm thinking back to last year or even the, the year before that and before that. Let's just use last year as an example. If Buddy and Elijah Hughes combined for two points, Syracuse had zero chance of winning. Absolutely yep. none. And that's kind of the beauty, like you said, of the depth, but... Looking at Buddy and Allen's struggles in this game. So, Allen Griffin, I mean, <laughs> he just didn't seem locked in from start to finish. He's 0 for 4 in this game, 0 for 3 from distance, and he puts up a goose egg. Buddy hits the first shot of the game. First shot of the game. Everything after that, 0 for 11. So, he only gets those first two points, doesn't get to the free throw line at all, nor does Allen Griffin. And I think that might be the most concerning thing for me with their offense is the fact that, okay, yeah, it's one thing to combine to go one for 16 between the two of them, but to not be attacking and getting inside. And and the weird thing with, with Buddy is that he only took three threes in this game, and I don't know if I'm okay with that because this is a guy who, I mean, we've seen Gerard have his struggles this season, right? And, and Gerard wasn't great shooting the basketball in this game, but he found other ways to score. He was two of nine from three, but he was attacking the cup and got to the free throw line nine times, or not nine times, he shot nine free throws in this game and, and made all nine of them. 
But he's another guy who I want to see attack, be a little more physical inside, especially against a team like Northeastern, who you know is not going to be physical with you. Yeah, I'll give it to Gerard because, as you said, I mean, he did all the things that we were kind of asking him to do in this game, the things that he's like here, been let, bad let at. Me, let me put this into context here, all right? He went 2 of 9 from 3. You know what other game he went 2 of 9 from 3 this year? Bryant uh, in yeah. the opener. <laughs> Right. And in that Bryant game, he had, what, six points? Maybe eight points, was it? But the difference between these two games is that he found other ways to get involved. He got the steals that led to easy buckets. He got to the free throw line. He found other ways to score. Whereas in that Bryant game, if he wasn't hitting a three, he wasn't scoring. And that's a huge problem for this team. Yeah, and I was at a point where I thought... Okay, the thing with Gerard is he's going to have hot and cold shooting nights, and when he's cold shooting, you might want to turn to Kadari because he doesn't give you much on defense, and he doesn't give you much getting to the basket. And that's what I've been calling for, is get to the free throw line, attack a little bit more. He hits three two-point shots in this game compared to two threes. And he, as Most you said, of goes, them off of his own steals, too. Right. I mean, six steals, that that's outstanding from him. And that play that he makes to go up 60-53, the and one, I I think effectively iced the game. Now, the caveat to this whole conversation of, oh, there are some positives that you still win the game when your two best players or two highest scorers maybe only combined for two points, you're not getting away with this in the ACC. I I don't even think against, well, BC, I mean, the way BC played it. As Beheim jokingly said, you could probably afterwards. get away with this against the the really bad ACC teams like the Wake Forests and yeah, and, but a majority, yeah, now. obviously BC. But no, yeah, you're right. Even like Pittsburgh's now won five in a row. Teams like that, I I don't know if you're getting away with it. Miami of the world, Georgia Tech's like they haven't looked great, but to me, they just have a little bit more pop. And Northeastern was down its best player in the second half. Tyson Walker, their guard, is out. And honestly, I think that allowed Jim Beheim to press, which I think it's the first yeah, time no first time since maybe the Virginia game that, that the press, that's probably not true, because the year after that, they had some success with the press when they had those upsets over ranked teams. But it's the first time in a while that I've sat there and been like, whoa, keep pressing. The press is working, because I think that's usually, and, and Beheim said, what, uh, less than a week ago that they can't press a pair of pants, and here they go- turn to it when they really need it. So another thing that I was really frustrated with within the offense, obviously Joe, or not Joe, um, Buddy and, and Alan Griffin's performances were nothing in this game. You look at their offensive ratings on Ken Palm. Alan Griffin posts a six. Buddy posts a 23. For Yikes. context, 100 is average. So they are well, well, well below that ledger. But to me, the one thing was that we've seen the Syracuse team, it's pace, 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 pace. You're getting up and down the floor. Meanwhile, you're watching this game, and you're seeing Syracuse work that shot clock down to like seven and five and three, and it's to the point where you're hearing the announcers say how much time's on the shot clock as kind of a, hey, they're probably going to get a shot going sometime soon. We haven't really heard much of that. We haven't seen them work that shot clock very, very far down because this is a Syracuse team that so far this season, has been one of the best in pace in terms of, I shouldn't say the best in pace because it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing, but I think it has helped this Syracuse team. I think they entered that, or yesterday's game with a, with the 15th 
quickest pace on offense, and after that, they've dropped to 21st. And you look at how they move the ball as well. This is a team that was one of the best in terms of assist to field goal made ratio. And on their their field goals, they assisted on eight of the 19. And so that's 42% right there. Heading into the game, they were about at a 65, one of the best in the country. So I just didn't see the ball moving around. When it did move, it felt like a wasted movement. It was just very inefficient overall offensively. It felt like a 3 p.m. game on Wednesday. <laughs> it was well, it was kind of a snooze. Can I dispel something real quick? Yeah. Everyone going out there and saying, oh, 3 p.m. sluggish, 3 p.m. sluggish. I think that's stupid. And I think Jim Beheim even said as much after the game. Like, that, that had no impact on this game. Because these kids, they're in winter break mode right now. They don't know what day it is. They don't know what time it is. None of that stuff. Okay? They play games at, well, the BC game was at 1 p.m. On, on a Saturday, okay? So so the time of the game doesn't necessarily dictate sluggishness in my No, opinion. I don't. I don't, know, I don't know if that's what you, but I saw that thrown a lot around on Twitter. So I don't know if that's something that you felt, but for me personally, I think that's that's just such a non-factor in this game. Yeah, I These guys play more, before 3 p.m. all the time. Right, I meant more as just as a general consumer of the game, it was just an odd experience. It, it was... It was not a normal Syracuse basketball game because the offense looked poorly and the defense was kind of helping them out. And like I said, the press was working and you get Alan Griffin and Buddy doing nothing. It was just a weird time to be watching Syracuse basketball and a weird time to be consuming the game. And it looked like a different product than what we've seen. So I almost feel like we'll see what they have against Buffalo, which honestly, Buffalo is a better team than Northeastern. If they play like they did against Northeastern, and Buffalo doesn't lose one of their best players at halftime or right around there, then I think they're in trouble. Like, they've got to play a lot better than they did yesterday. And I'm not concerned overall because I think we can chalk this up as just one of those bad games. And the positive is they've had two of those now, and they've won two of them. And they very easily could have lost one of them. And it's like, boom, sound the alarms because that's, you know, catastrophic at this stage. You can't lose these type of games. It's a no win, everything to lose type of situation. And that's what made me nervous and anxious down the stretch. But I'll credit them. They made some winning plays, I guess you could call it, against some lackluster teams, albeit. But the the way that they were able to pull out the game was promising. And you can't sort of underestimate how valuable it is to get those crunch time minutes and crunch time opportunities and experience in that situation. You think Beheim? let's just say they did lose this game. Do you think he goes to the post-game presser and says we should have never scheduled it? He can't. I mean, <laughs> I would hope not. He can't do it after Bryant. And I don't know. I, I don't think he has any excuse because they had been practicing more than they had been in recent games leading up to it. And he clearly wanted to put it on their schedule. And they talked about how, oh, we usually play them. And we just felt like, okay, they had an opening. It worked out well. So he couldn't have said it, but I mean, I guess nothing's off the table with him in these press conferences this year. All right, listen up. Hoops are here. I love it. You love it. And there's no better way to enjoy basketball season than with a mountain cold Coors Light in hand. It's the perfect time to unwind from a stressful time. And guess what? It doesn't get any easier with the holidays right around the corner. And also, 
Football's winding down now. The clock is ticking, so you better get your hands on some Coors Light, enjoy the remainder of football season, and enjoy the beginning of basketball season because we are on sports overload right now, and you need Coors Light to help you get through all of the fun sports watching. It's the official beer of watching any sport or any team just to drink beer. So with the holidays around the corner, it can be stressful for you, but fear not, Coors Light can appear at your door in just a couple of clicks. You heard that right. Ditch the grocery store or the corner store trips and let Coors Light do the delivery for you. It's not just your local restaurants that deliver to you these days or the Amazon carriers anymore. Nope, Coors Light can appear at your door in just a couple of clicks and boom, you're ready to chill. Go to get.coorslight.com and you can have a six pack, 12 pack, or even a 24 pack of mountain cold Coors Lights at your doorstep in under an hour. Go to get.coorslight.com. Again, that's get.coorslight.com. Celebrate responsibly, Golden, Colorado. When you look at the two guys who struggled the most, Buddy, Alan Griffin. Obviously, I don't expect this to be some sort of trend that continues here. It feels like it was just an off night for for both of them, or an off afternoon, whatever you want to call it. But are you expecting any sort of long-term ramifications from either of their performances? And are you concerned at all? Like, Do you have a certain long-term concern about either one of them, given what you saw out of them yesterday? Maybe the Griffin height was getting a little too high, like amongst us and amongst other people, potentially. I don't even really know if other people were as high on him. But, you know, I think he was scoring the ball at an incredible rate, and that all was great, and he was making a lot of shots. He still has work to do on defense that concerns me a little bit once they go against some legit teams in ACC play, like not the Boston College's of the world, but the teams that are in the top half of the conference, I'd say. It did sort of just feel like this was his welcome to Syracuse, Jim Beheim's your head coach type of game, because, I mean, Beheim was giving him an earful on the sideline. I think there was right. one break in the action where he, like, literally spent the entire break just giving it to him, and that's, you know, he wasn't playing well, so that's Beheim's thinking of kind of how to fire him up, but he has some good, like, in the press conference, he was he was kind of going after him, and honestly, Griffin just stunk. Like I like the guy; I don't think it's that big of a deal, but it does concern me more with him just because I know what Buddy is at this point, and I I just feel like I have more in my memory bank of Buddy and Alan Griffin. We're still sort of working through how good is he going to be, how good are his off nights going to be and that was a little bit of a concern with us going into the season was he's going to be a little bit more inconsistent maybe than some of the other guys right it's the whole question of what's he going to look like when he has to play 35 minutes a night and I think the one thing that I'm definitely concerned with and again I'm mostly unconcerned with both of their performances but the one trend I see developing with Griffin is the turnovers because he, again, he only played 24 minutes in this game because essentially Beheim gave him the hook and opted for a Kadari Richmond down the stretch. But we're looking at the turnovers these last three games, 6-6-3. Six, six, and three. That gives you an average of, 15, of uh, 5 over the last three games. And the competition has gotten much better these last three games. So that's the one thing I'm going to point to when I look at Alan Griffin is, all right, you may not be scoring the ball, but the turnovers are starting to mount up. I will say one thing about Griffin, though. Even though he didn't score in this game, he didn't take any bad shots in my eyes. Like, all four of his looks were pretty quality looks, I would say. 
The only thing is, is that if you're going to be labeled as a scorer and you're only taking four shots, yeah, I can't imagine. That's a problem. I, 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 like, it's so odd to me that he only shot four times. I kept looking down at the box score and being like, what? Like, well, here's the thing okay? that I see with, <laughs> yeah, the thing I see with Alan Griffin, though, that is that he didn't force anything in this game. And I feel like we've seen that a couple times out of him. Like, sometimes he's the guy who's going to hit the first shot of the game for you. But other times we see him, I won't say check out necessarily, but he does. He tries to do other things as opposed to score early on. And I think that maybe hurts his offensive game a little bit. Because I will say, even though he wasn't great in this game, I still thought he was pretty active. The only difference was he was indecisive at times. You saw times where he was going to pump fake for a shot and maybe he had an open lane to, to score and instead he kicks it out or like there was the one play where he gets the ball in transition and maybe he felt a little off balance with it so he kicks it to the corner to buddy for a shot instead sometimes I feel like he's almost too unselfish when he knows he doesn't have it offensively and maybe that's a good thing but I still thought he was an active player in this game to a degree he just felt very indecisive. And and when you're indecisive like he was, you're, you're going to be a non-factor on offense. It showed us that this is going to be a feast and famine team probably most of the year. And we talked about that because they rely on the three-point shot. And our quote-unquote stars of the big three, whatever you want to call it, the Gerard, Griffin, and Bayheim trio, they all, their C game is not very good. Like they have had bad games in their career, in this season, Griffin, this is kind of his first, I would say. Now, he had a terrible first half against Rutgers, but he bounced back nicely from that. So, you know, like, that's the concern with this team is can they win with their B and C stuff against good teams, against teams that are Clemson and above them in the ACC, Virginia even, like the Dukes and UNCs, like, they're down this year, but still, you got to prove that you can win with your B stuff. And we, we should talk about Quincy now. I mean, we've done it again. We're, we have we're, no choice today. Yeah. We have no choice today. <laughs> I mean, I almost thought about just leaving it out for the bit, Tim. I thought about it. But no. we, we really have to get into everything that he did because he was phenomenal in this game. Ken Palm hands out game MVPs. He by far and away was the game MVP for this one. He goes for a double-double here of 18 and 16 and just looked dominant. I, really... Syracuse could get anything they wanted offensively with the bigs in this game. They could get anything they wanted. I mean, you saw Quincy bully guys. You saw Marek bully guys. The, those two were, were two of your three leading scorers in this game. Two of your, or really the, the two only efficient scorers on your team. And the way that Quincy dominated the glass in this game too. I mean, it was something else. The, the way that he was flying for rebounds and then getting second opportunities. There's seven offensive rebounds in this game for Quincy. If you brought in an alien, which is the obvious like analogy that everyone likes to use, but I'll use it. If you brought in an alien and just said, okay, watch these six games of Syracuse basketball to start the season, you know nothing about the team. I think you'd have to think he's the best player right now on Syracuse. And you'd be like, no yeah, doubt. that guy's an NBA forward for sure. I don't know what grade he is, but he's going to play in the NBA just watching these games because he's been the best player for Syracuse in three of the six games now. He gets the MVP from Ken Palm against Niagara as well when he had 23 points and had that super high offensive rating, 186, was super efficient in 26 minutes when they dominated Niagara and won by 30. And then against Rutgers... 
he was the best player on the on the court for Syracuse the entire game. That's when he made some threes, went three for five from downtown, finished that game with 18 points. He has 18 points and then 16 rebounds in this game. And we talked about how if Quincy goes off, it's not necessarily because it's the Niagara game where they have no size. Like Northeastern did have some bodies to put on him, not ACC level, but I think to me he just continues. For a mid major, they're pretty big, and we talked about that yeah. in our preview too. For a mid major, they're they're a pretty tall team. He just continues to prove that he's taking the best shots of anyone on the team. He's the most efficient offensive player on the team, and he's honestly been one of the more consistent guys on the team. And he hasn't gotten in foul trouble yet necessarily. He does have four fouls in this game, but. That's a bonus, although I, I think it's a little premature to just be like, oh, yeah, then no concerns about foul trouble going into ACC play because it's going to get tougher and tougher. But, I I mean, you really can't couldn't have expected anything better from Quincy in these first six games. So you look at what Quincy has done so far this season. He's ninth in the ACC in offensive rating, third among all front court players. If I told you heading into this season that through the first six games of Syracuse plays – Quincy would have double figures in all six and three double doubles. Would you believe me? No. I mean, that's outstanding. Would you have believed either one of those numbers? Because maybe the three double doubles I could have believed. Yeah. But double figures in all six and being the best player on the floor in what? At least on the Syracuse side for at least three of those games? Yeah. He's, uh, He's third in the country right now in shot quality. That's one of our favorite websites, shotquality.com. They kind of track per possession how good you are in terms of getting good looks for your team and, and getting positive possessions. And 98 percentile right now in terms of the That's country. phenomenal. Yeah, third. I mean, Luca Garza's one, and then there's a guy from Coastal Carolina, and then it's Quincy Garrier from Syracuse. And on a team where we take some bad shots maybe, and sometimes it, it – because yeah, us as fans. We've so. tweeted out the shot quality stats. I mean, Joe Girard, I don't know what his numbers I'd imagine his numbers probably improved a little bit. Yeah, but I'm gonna look it up here while he, you keep going. He's in the eleventh percentile, one of the, the worst in terms of shot quality on this team. So to see Garrier's number that that high is a very well, not that I mean, he is literally among the elites. He's among the the, the national player of the year in terms of the, the quality of looks that he's getting out there. Um, the one thing is, um, everyone's been talking about the whole ACC most improved player. And honestly, I think in, uh, and of course, we're only six games in, but in any other year, it's Quincy. But have you seen the numbers that Justin Champagny from Pitt has put up so far he's this unreal. season? Yeah. I mean, he's already got two 2020 games, and he's a six foot six wing guy. So. Um, it feels like it's Justin Champagne who's probably going to win this because he's basically taking what Quincy's doing and putting it on steroids. But I mean, Quincy, any other year, it feels like this would have been his award. And again, only six games in so much can happen the rest of the season, but, um, it it seems like it's going to be those two guys going neck and neck for it at the end. Yeah. At least that's answer now. So Gerard on shot quality, just to give everyone these numbers, he's up to 17th percentile, which is an improvement, but still the worst mark on the team. Braswell is right in front of him, 24th percentile. Some other notables, it's Quincy, 98th percentile, then a pretty big drop-off. Kadari, 65th percentile. Woody, 64. so the two freshmen. 
And then Buddy and Alan Griffin are 58 and 57th percentile, respectfully, and, and Marek's 49. And that's kind of everyone they've been tracking so far. So not a lot of great shots to go around. Syracuse as a team isn't great in the shot quality rankings right now. But Quincy is just holding down the Ford as third in the country. All right, so there we did it. We talked about Quincy Garrier. I think we can <laughs> we can take a break now for like five weeks now. Um, no. because we got to no, talk I about mean, him. More. In all honesty, like he, he has been the best player on this team through six games, and I don't even think that's a, a deniable fact at this point because he he has just been Mister Consistency. He's giving it to you on the glass, even when he starts out a little slow defensively. You see him pick it up. And I think there was one play that kind of embodied that. He gets an and one, misses the free throw, and then instead of pouting on his way back down the floor, what does he do? He gets up, he calls, I think he called up Kadari to press with him, and they force a 10-second violation in the backcourt. It's just the little things like that. And he just is playing with such a higher IQ this year. Obviously, he's healthier, too, because you see him flying around on the court, too. And then it's showing in his numbers as well. So good to see that with Quincy Garrier. As for the defense in this game, there are great moments, but there were a lot of really bad ones. And the way that you saw Northeastern move this zone, I mean, at times it looks like they are just, and it's not just them. We've seen it out of a number of teams this year. Bryant in the first game specifically, Rutgers did it a lot, but... When you look at how Syracuse is going to get beat, it's when you've got teams moving the ball quickly against the zone. And they talked about it on the broadcast too, Malcolm Huckabee and Mike Monaco. When you get a paint touch and you are kicking it out, out of the paint touch, this this team, Northeastern, was shooting the lights out. When they were tracking it at the time, they were 4 of 5 from 3 when they got a paint touch and then kicked it out for a 3. Wow. And... You just look at how Northeastern moved this zone with their quick passes and all that stuff. I mean, you could not see a shell of a 2-3 zone. It was five guys running around with their heads cut off, it felt like. That's what it was. And we've seen this a couple of times now where the zone just is so broken down. It's not a zone defense. It's literally five guys running around. Yeah, it's concerning. I mean, I still... This was kind of like a, and I know Bayheim talked about this. Oh, everyone was saying we're going to win the national title after BC. First off, I don't think anyone was. Saying I don't that. think that was yeah. true. No, were we? I mean, excited? people were encouraged. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how could you not be? You won a conference game by thirty-eight points. That's a positive, Jim. Like, you can't have it both ways here. You can't get mad at the media for throwing Gerard under the bus and then be like, oh, okay, all of a sudden people overreact. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole nother topic, but. It's it's concerning because this team has a lot of potential, but they're going to have some bad games, and this was one of them. And just the way that they play offensively, they're going to go cold sometimes. And the way that they are defensively, with not in the ideal backcourt, I mean, when Kadari's at the front, I think he's as good as it gets for the 2-3 zone in recent years, but... With Gerard, who did look better in this game, there's still limitations to them. And there's limitations to them at the center position that haven't been able to be exposed yet because they haven't really played anyone that it's going like Rutgers didn't live up to its billing there and they still Although it is worth noting too that uh Barama was shooting yeah. around a little bit yesterday, so I guess that's an encouraging sign and if 
from everything I read on Twitter, it seems like he's he's looking a lot better. So yeah, hopefully you're going to get him back sooner rather than later. Yeah, I heard he wasn't even walking around with a limp. I think Mike Waters tweeted that out, which yeah. is mm-hmm. positive. And especially coming off a knee surgery, that's pretty quick turnaround to be out on the court and looking pretty good there. So, yeah, I mean, I think once you get Barama back, it's huge. But it also doesn't really solve all your issues. Like, we saw them get exposed down low with Barama last year when they had to go up against some of the better front courts in the country. Can they have games where they sort of figure it out yes but I think what I've learned about this team six games in they're gonna look really bad some nights and they're gonna look really good some nights and it's gonna be probably just a fun team to track from just a general perspective because they're they got like a huge ceiling that they could take some teams down and they could make a run if all goes according to plan and they get to March Madness and maybe they draw the right matchup that doesn't have a great I saw Lenardi has them as a nine right now yeah that makes sense. And that's that's honestly like why that Northeastern win was so vital. Because you win the game, no one really talks about how it was close. You lose the game, and that is one of those March Madness resume big blows, which is, oh, remember when they lost to Northeastern at home back in December? Yeah, that, that's going to hurt them. So I'm glad that they were able to just sort of fight through a really bad game. It's good, yeah. Obviously, it's better to win these than lose these. But defensively, I mean... They forced the 21 turnovers in this game. And I think the crazy thing about this is if you take the shooting percentages for both field goals and three-pointers out of this one and you just straight look at the box score without those two statistics, you would have thought Syracuse absolutely dominated this game. 22 of 26 from the free throw line. They they turned over Northeastern 21 times while they only coughed it up 10 times. You won the rebounding battle. Um, you're winning the fast break points, you're getting out in transition, point paints, you were dominant, second chance points, everything, everything was Syracuse leaning. And then you look at the final score and you're like, what the hell, it's a six point game. And again, it comes down to whether or not you're going to make shots. And it sounds stupid, it sounds cliche, but that's ultimately what it is. And I look at the defense in this game, there, there were plenty of times where there were plenty of holes. And I think, sure, the, the turnovers look great. But a lot of those errors were unforced. I mean, we saw a lot of travels, and I don't know if that was Northeastern just being uncomfortable against the zone or what, but I didn't. I don't have a final tracker on how many traveling calls there were, but there were a bunch of them in this game, honestly, on both sides too. So maybe it was the, the officiating crew was being a little more trigger-happy towards that call. But you're going to need to firm up on defense. And I'm starting to think, listen, Kadari's amazing at the top. He is amazing at the top, and he's by far and away your best guy that you've got at the top of the zone, a lot of it given his length. But I don't even know if it's a a Joe and Buddy thing. I think it's just some of these teams, they just know how to move this entire shell, and because of that, it doesn't matter who you have at the top at times. Felt like they were going to the corner three a lot, and that was something they scouted. And as you said, once they got a paint touch, then it became a lot easier. There are definitely obvious sort of like areas to expose this zone and we've seen it as fans we've watched it time and time again and some teams have executed like Bryant as you said did a great job in that first game albeit when Syracuse was coming off kind of a a rusty stretch without practicing they they looked pretty bad so I don't know I I think they're matchup dependent and if a team comes in and just kind of has the right game plan for the zone then they could sort of 
just all of a sudden run out of there with a 20-point win in the Dome or a 15-point win. That's going to happen, and there's going to be games where we get on here on this podcast and are like, "Uh uh-oh, like, that was a disaster. I did not enjoy watching that. And then there's going to be games where it's the exact opposite, like it was against BC. So I do want to gush a little bit over what Kadari did in this game defensively because I thought, listen, he doesn't come up with a single steal in this game. But yeah, you look at how. Joe Girard's six. I thought he had, I mean, he had deflections yeah. for sure. Well, yeah, he had a lot of deflections. And I know they track that sort of stuff. But you look at Joe Girard's six steals, I would guess you could credit two or three a product of Kadari being disruptive at the top. Like, that that's how good he was in this game defensively. Yeah, I think he probably, on a game like this, deserved more minutes, honestly. He gets 18 of them. And I was kind of happy that Jim did make that call to bench Allen, given sort of how the game was playing out. I never would have guessed that I would have been happy about that before the game because you think he's the isolation scorer you need down the stretch. But Kadari, we're never going to see him score 20 probably this year, maybe an off game here or there. It doesn't feel like it because he has no real shot right now. I mean, he does make five of six in the foul line in this game, but it's not like when he pulls for three, you're feeling super confident about it. But no, that's yeah, I, I would honestly say I feel the same way when the ball leaves his hand from anywhere outside of 18 feet as I do about Marek. Yeah, Marek does not look good, I from deep at least. He's hesitant a little bit. I I don't know. It's a and that's fine. Cause... You don't need him to shoot. Th- I don't think you need Marek shooting threes. I, I don't think you need Kadari shooting threes because I think Kadari, one thing about him is that he can get into the paint and kind of create some offense that way too yeah Kadari has been excellent he's exceeded expectations we probably don't even talk about him enough and I don't know it's weird because Beheim's in this tough spot that he probably should be playing Kadari 20-25 minutes a night but you got to cut into Buddy and Joe if you're doing that and I think a lot of fans would just say oh yeah do that do that I told I probably I don't think it's that easy but it's not yeah it's not that easy like it's yeah you need Joe to be starting because I think Jim or James Zuba laid out a good point that it's important for a guy like Joe and a shooter like him to not be coming off the bench because then he's probably forcing shots even more. And Richmond is still a guy that doesn't really have a lot in the tank once you get past 20, 25 minutes. So I was going to say, would you rather get 15 to 18 strong, strong minutes of Kadari or would you rather get... 22 to 27 and he's gonna make some blunders for you during that stretch probably 15 to 18 and i think that's probably how jim's thinking about it so honestly i think he's actually handled the rotation pretty well we'll see what happens when sadibe comes back because then it's how much is woody going to play and will he actually go to eight guys i'm i've been really interested to see especially in the early going not as much in the late stages of that game but I've always found it kind of interesting that he's. I've seen him bring in Kadari and Woody in tandem pretty yeah. much every single time in that game until he essentially Alan Griffin got the hook and he rolled with Kadari towards the end of the game. I'm I'm really intrigued by that because I feel like that's when they have some of their struggles defensively is when you have Kadari, Woody, Allen, and then it's like Joe and then throw whoever you want at the big down low. Um, I, I've just found that kind of interesting because that's when I see the defense struggle a lot. Yeah, I think they've looked pretty good. It is odd that they're a package deal, it seems like. 
I don't know if that's because they practice together a lot and they're just good pals, I would assume, because they came in in the same freshman class. Maybe I'm overthinking that, but it seems like in this game exclusively, he was like, okay, Kadari, Woody, you, you both get up. And he actually finally went to some bench uh, minutes in the second half of a game out of necessity because Alan Griffin, but it was good to see that. Right. All right. That's going to do it for the recap here of this Northeastern game. We'll be back tomorrow because guess what? Quick turnaround. We got Buffalo this Saturday. So we're going to break down all things Syracuse and Buffalo. Another mid-major coming to town for the Orange. And Buffalo probably going to be, uh, of all the mid-majors that they face, the best one. They're 122 on Ken Palm, so we'll brief you on everything you need to know about another stingy Bulls team. So we'll get you all of that later on and, and get you ready for that game on Saturday. For Tim, I'm Tyler. We will talk to you guys tomorrow. Oh,